Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Tennessee. I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And a slant and go across the Harpeth River from me here in the Music City, it's our own offensive coordinator, the coach, Corey Burton. What's up, Matt? What's up, Josh? This is uh, another great night, another great weekend of football. Uh, A lot of good games that were on. Uh, The afternoon set was really good. Uh, and then especially that nightcap of LSU, Texas, which I'm sure we will get into, uh, was also an exciting one. So uh, let's get the show rolling, guys. Well, can't get rolling without the third amigo in the second city. A man who realized the best player on Rutgers is their punter. It's, oh, the, <laughs> it's uh, our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and Counting, Josh Cook. I'll tell you what, his foot pinned Iowa back so many times that prevented us from scoring half a hundred. Yes, yeah, so he was well for far and away the best player for the Scarlet Knights in that game, and that tells you uh, what you saw. Um, it was a very fun week two of uh, college football, and we are going to get into some of the big games here in just a second. Um, but before we get started, uh, if you'll remember, during our last show, we each adopted a new team uh, sort of to, I guess, root for and cheer on for the rest of the season. Josh... Uh, your Eastern Michigan Eagles lost to Kentucky 38-17, to uh, but Kentucky's quarterback also managed to injure himself and looks like he's going to be out for the rest of the year. So kind of a lose-lose situation there. I guess, yeah, I wasn't going to highlight that aspect. But just in terms of the uh, Screaming Eagle performance, yeah, they didn't adjust well to playing an SEC team on the road. Got smacked around in that first quarter. They were down 14 nothing after one. The rest of the game, they were only outscored one point. Their quarterback, a little Mr. Mike Glass III, uh, he had two picks. But other than that, his day was pretty good with over 300 yards against an SEC defense and two touchdowns. Um, All in all, in a loss, there's certainly worse performances. And I'll be talking about one in my quick slant. So, well done, Eastern. Coach, uh, Georgia State got another win uh, on the year. this time, uh, we're a lot closer to Furman than they were to Tennessee, uh, barely beating them 48-42 to at home. Uh, Georgia State now 2-0 to start the year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they're off to a great start. Uh, Dan Ellington threw five touchdown passes. They were actually down uh, 17 points in the second quarter um, to then pull away and, and win 48-42. to um, Ellington had a really good day, not only tossing five touchdown passes, he also completed 29 of 37 for almost 400 yards, sitting at 362. No picks. He had a passer rating of 205.2. So um, both teams also rushed for more than 200. So lots of offense as they both teams combined for 1,104 yards on in total offense. So um, 
what uh, what that guy said about Furman being tougher competition than Tennessee uh, looked like he was right. They had a, they had they had a rough go at it um, against Furman, but the the thing is, is Georgia State is two and zero, and they get to play the University of Western Michigan or Western Michigan University, whatever they call themselves. Um, they're on the road. They're traveling up uh, to wherever Michigan, wherever Western Michigan is located, whatever town they're located in. Josh, you're our Midwestern geography expert. Western Michigan is in Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo. Central is go. in Mount Pleasant. And Eastern is All in right. Ypsilanti. Okay, I'll ask you that again um, next I, week probably. I believe – is Michigan Tech in Houghton? Yes, that is correct. It is in – Houghton, Michigan. There we go. Up in the UP. They're UPers. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Georgia State, uh, they're on a roll, guys. So, um, you know what? I'm actually going to use that as my quick slant. So, right. you guys are up. <laughs> All right, Josh. Uh, you, found, uh, you, you found out, like I said in the intro, that the Rutgers football squad is not exactly their strongest this season. Sorry, Dad. No, they're awful. And this is the fourth year of Chris Ash. He has had a two-win season, a four-win season, and a one-win season. He's finished 0-9 in two of his three years in the Big Ten. And based on what I saw on Saturday, they're going to have a back-to-back 0-9 team. They're gonna, he's going to end his career. They're going to fire him at the end of the season. They have to. Uh, going three and thirty-three in Big Ten play, this team cannot win a conference game. Iowa was in terrible field position all day. Gave them really short fields because they were punting from their own end zone multiple times. And Rutgers produced five first downs, two of fourteen on third, hundred and twenty-five total yards. 10 of 27 passing for 47 yards and two interceptions, 78 rushing yards on 22 carries. They were penalized seven times. They lost the turnover battle three, nothing. And they had 22 minutes of time of possession. They are awful. And it's an embarrassment for the big 10. It's an embarrassment for the university. I feel sorry for them. Uh, and I think during the game, the announcers said it the best. It was second half. The blowout was in progress. And the play-by-play guy was commenting, well, this is Iowa's earliest conference game. And Petros Papadakis, the USC fullback great, basically said, yeah, but... If this was Michigan or they were playing in Ann Arbor, it would feel like a conference game regardless of the time of year. With Rutgers, you don't care. It's not a Big Ten game. doesn't have the feel of a Big Ten game. Um, Maryland sort of feels the same way, and Rutgers sort of feels the same way, depending on who you are in the league. But especially for Iowa fans and most Big Ten West fans, Rutgers is pointless. I'm not sure any Big Ten fan cares, and that includes Penn State, which is theoretically their closest rival, 
quote unquote, or Maryland, quote unquote. This is just an abomination. And I don't know how in the world enough people are signing up in New York City with the recent trends of cutting the cord and stuff, that this is going to be a marriage that lasts longer than a decade. Yeah, it just doesn't seem natural for yeah. Rutgers to be there. And so, I, which actually leads me to something that my dad emailed us about, actually. Um, and one of the things that he said is that he thinks that Rutgers should be in a conference that is uh, not the Big Ten. In fact, one that he, he proposes calling the New England Conference at first. Um, but the NEC has already taken, obviously. I proposed the Yankee Conference. He said that uh, that had too, uh, too many overly northern overtones. So, um, Well, they could go by the Wasp League. <laughs> the Wasp League, okay. Um, <laughs> why not? <laughs> they, could, they could be the first conference to be sponsored, and, and uh, they could be the Pepsi Conference. So or the, the, the Dunkin' Donuts conference dunkin donuts would be the most appropriate basically they can be, to, new, they can be yeah. new england football sponsored by land's end well the problem is it's going to also involve the university of delaware rutgers umass uconn university of maine university of new hampshire university of rhode island university of delaware holy cross and then he said bu unfortunately bu hasn't had a football team <laughs> since 97 so i uh, surmise that maybe we could replace them with Northeastern, add SUNY Albany to get to 10 teams, and then Bryant and Sacred Heart. All of those schools are FCS. And, and Rutgers would still be middle of the pack. Yeah, Rutgers would still be middle of the pack, but it would be perfect. 12-team football conference in the Northeast. Uh, the Dunkin' Donuts Conference, here we come. Yeah. Speaking about Rutgers and Massachusetts, by the way, Rutgers uh, beat Massachusetts a week ago. Uh, looked pretty impressive compared to Rutgers teams of recent lore. Massachusetts last weekend, second game out. Yeah, they got smoked to Southern Illinois. They lost 45-20 to an FCS team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh. Not looking good for football in that region of the country. Outside of BC. BC oh. looks good. BC looks really good. I uh, came I around in a... BC just at the right time. There you go. Bandwagon. I had a, I had a little uh, quick... Bandwagon. I had a very, very quick, uh, minuscule hitch on the opposite side of my quick slant, and that was just, if you haven't seen it, there's this ridiculous story. Uh, Kent State was hosting a field hockey tournament, and uh, a game between two schools, uh, Kent State was not involved in it. But they went to overtime. It was Temple and Maine. The game went to overtime. And, well, the fire marshal said, hey, we're going to shoot off fireworks for parents weekend can't be on the field and they're like huh we're playing a game and the university is like well we can reschedule it for like four hours from now and it didn't work for either university kent state it's daytime fireworks no one cares just do the fireworks yeah, really. after the game you don't need to do or it just before. don't do them at all yeah because it's them, a kent state football game i'm sorry like i think they're at, dumb at badger games i think they're dumb yeah. at most college football games that aren't bowl games. Daytime fireworks are stupid wherever they are. Yes. Get it out. What are you doing, Kent State? It's it's pathetic. 
Um, all right. Well, uh, guys, before we move on, time for your pop quiz. So get out your number do, numero dos pencils. Uh, I don't even know the Spanish word for pencil. But I've been sleeping through class. Well, too bad, is kid. It, it's all right time. if my pencil is soft lead. Is it still number two? Can you be soft number two? Are there different uh, levels of hardness in a number two pencil? I don't know. Sure. I'm sure there is. Well, but, Josh is soft, but I don't know about his pencil. Uh, th- this past weekend, my beloved Wisconsin Badgers uh, did quite well against Central Michigan, uh, beating them by a score of 61 to nothing. Uh, in the game, Jonathan Taylor, for the 24th time in his 28-game career, ran for over 100 yards. He joins uh, 19 other running backs who, since the year 2000, have rushed for 100 yards 24 or more times um, in their careers. Josh, you are up first in determining who these running backs are since 2000. Yeah, I have a, I have a point of uh, clarification. Just yes, real sir. Quick. Um, I'm assuming... Ron Dane playing the 99-2000 season doesn't count. Uh, that is correct. Okay. I just, yeah. I just, well, I mean, to... cause, well, no, because the, even he, then he would have had one game in the year to, in the actual calendar year 2000. Well, so, that's why no. I wanted to know because he had a lot of 100 yard. Yep. No, 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 no. And it would have been games, it's games since the year 2000. So if, even if you went 98, 99, 2000, 2001, only the seasons 2000 and 2001 would be counted. Okay, all right. Um, I sort of figured, based on him sniffing Ron Dane's overall yardage mark, Danelle Pumphrey's got to be up there, right? Number two. He had yeah. 33 such contests. Well, speaking of Ron Dane, you got to think of his uh, fellow Badger, uh, current NFL holdout, Melvin Gordon. Uh, Melvin Gordon only had 22 in his career now because he oh. didn't start until he only had mm, two years as a starting running back and he was not featured as much as Jonathan Taylor has his his uh, touches per game were not nearly as many as Taylor's hmm. especially when he was a freshman Taylor was getting the workload from day one freshman year Melvin really didn't yeah, get in yeah. there until the um, sort of like the middle part of his redshirt freshman year hmm. So strike um, one for coach. Yeah. So Indeed. we've talked about it before, kind of peeling back the curtain. We get these questions earlier in the day so that we can at least form a list. And coach, feel free to accuse me of cheating, but uh, I couldn't remember his name. I had jotted down on my list that Memphis kid. And I Googled him before the show. So I've got that Memphis kid. Is that cheating? Can I say D'Angelo Williams or is that totally I mean, he's number one. Like – does that count? Number one, the, Coach, will you allow that Memphis kid as an answer? Yeah. I, I'm going I'm to group source this because I, I want to make you feel like <laughs> you don't just have equality, but you have equity in this whole process. And so, sure. okay. I would also accept uh, this, Jeopardy, this Jeopardy panel would also accept that Memphis kid because he's the only Memphis kid you really could have thought of. You really could have thought of. Paxton Lynch? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. That Memphis kid will be allowed. Coach, you're up again. Rashad Penny. Rashad Penny. Uh, Sorry, Coach. He did not crack those. He only had one season where he was really the starter because he he backed up Pumphrey. 
um, oh. for most of his career. Hmm. Well, he had one ridiculous season, uh, but no, Pumphrey was uh, in, in front of him for uh, hmm. at least two years, if not three. I liked that. That was a good guess, though. Um, oh, I'm going to go back to the Wisconsin well. Um, flamed out in the pros, unfortunately, but Monty Ball had a ton of career yards. I don't know if it was enough. 26, yard. 26 okay. career 100-yard games. He is eighth in that time Ooh. span. Didn't clear it by much. Coach. For strike three, Adrian Peterson. <laughs> Adrian Peterson. Uh, sorry, Coach. He Ooh. had 22 career games uh with 100 yards so he falls just short coach that is a strike three you're out quick josh any other answers quickly can i get can i get my redemption shot here okay double or nothing Uh, nick nick chubb Chubb is correct he had 24 nice okay okay i'm back in it there you go josh a little bit older school name but my god did he run a ton for arkansas darren mcfadden Darren McFadden didn't run as much for the Raiders. He ran. He again in that list of greats with only twenty-two <laughs> no in their career. <laughs> uh, he okay. only had twenty-two, so no, he's out. Shoot, um, okay. Coach, you got anyone else? Uh, I don't know if he played enough, but it's got to be. Does Clinton Portis qualify? Clinton Portis. Um, I don't believe – no, he did not qualify. He didn't have – he had fewer than 17. Well, that well that was good. And that's the top 100, so hmm. he did not make the top 100. Mm-hmm. Josh, any last guess? Okay. Uh, some names that were kind of kicking around my brain. I was thinking maybe Ray Rice while at Rutgers. Ray Rice is correct, 25. Um former Bears great, Cedric Benson. Said Benson at 25. Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably some names I'm going to kick myself once I hear them. Uh, my other guess, kind of in the same vein as me getting a clarification on um, Ron Dane's senior year, but um, LT, his senior year was 2000. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if LaDainian Tom was. Yeah, count. no. This didn't count. Uh, no, that exhausted that exhausted my list. Okay, with so couple of question marks. So Jonathan Taylor oh, comes in at twentieth, right above him, Darren Sproles. Uh, oh, Kansas State, uh, oh. amazing! Another uh, Wisconsin back, often overlooked. Anthony Davis, one of my favorite Wisconsin backs. AD, he, yeah. yeah, he was wonderful. Uh, never made it in the pros. Nick Chubb was mentioned. Amir Abdullah from Nebraska, in only yeah. three years, had twenty four. Ray Rice, oh, Damian Flett. Damian Fletcher of the Mustard Buzzards um, had 25 no, uh, in, the, in the mid-2000s, said Benson. Vi Taua from Nevada in three years had 26 such games. Dontrell Moore from New Mexico. LaMichael James from Oregon. No. Miles right. Gaskin sure from – Miles Gaskin. Michael James makes sense, yeah. yeah. Miles Gaskin yeah. from Washington. Yeah, um, makes sense. Mentioned Monty Ball. Justin Jackson from Northwestern, mm-hmm. Josh. I was a little disappointed uh, you didn't get him. Mm, um, you know what? Class. The thing with him that I always remembered was he – I don't want to call him a compiler because that's not the right word, but he played for four years, mm-hmm. um, started a lot as a freshman, 
Mm-hmm. And he, I remember him catching a lot of passes as well. I always kind of thought of him as a all-purpose yard type back. I was kind of thinking he'd have like 150-yard days where it's like 80 and 75. 70. Yeah, like 85 rushing yards, mm-hmm. that type of thing. But yeah, he was a heck of a college player. Uh, Montel Harris, who played at both BC and Temple, had 27. Ooh, uh, Kareem, New Hunt, uh, <laughs> Kareem Hunt had 28. Michael Hart from Michigan, Mike Hart, had 28. Oh, yeah. Royce Freeman oh, yeah. from Oregon, 31. And then Pumphrey and that guy from Memphis is number one, D'Angelo Williams, with 34. Ooh, that guy from Memphis. So that guy from Memphis uh, did a good job. Before we get into our deep roots, I wanted is, to is um sorry I, I didn't mean to interrupt sorry um, oh you're good I was just curious is um the Memphis player is he number two all time or is there someone outside of that 2000 window um above that um no he's number one all time okay. cool 34 so um yeah so anyway before we move on to our deep roots and talk about the biggest games of the weekend. I wanted to have a quick discussion about an article written by Jamel Hill in the Atlantic that was uh, published uh, recently. Um, And she talks about the idea of the top African-American football and basketball to a lesser extent recruits choosing to go to HBCUs. Um, her argument is that at the moment, um, in the Power Five leagues, um, the uh, football programs are 55% African-American football players and 56% in the basketball programs are African-American players. Yet in the 65 uh, Power Five schools, the overall uh, uh, number of the student body or proportion of the student body that is African-American is only 2.4%. Uh, HBCUs at the same time produce 80% of black judges, 50% of black lawyers, 50% of black doctors, 40% of black engineers, 40% of black members of Congress, and 13% of black CEOs in America, as well as the only black female candidate for the presidency in Kamala Harris, who went to Howard. So her argument states that she thinks that there could be a Fab Five-like recruiting shift if there were a number of the top African-American players to make the plunge and choose to attend an HBCU um, instead of the traditional, uh, you know, uh, college football establishment as governed by the NCAA. This also reminded me that the California State Assembly uh, just passed a new bill which allows players to get paid for their likenesses as collegiate athletes, as quote unquote student athletes. And I just, I want to A, talk about the overall subject of the position of HBCUs in sort of college football as you see it. And then I want to propose sort of a solution, but Josh, I sort of bounced this off idea off of you first. And, you know, I, I didn't know what you thought of the idea of, you know, I guess the plausibility of having blue chip recruits choose to attend HBCUs. Yeah, so I've got a a two-pronged answer. The first 
prom is it is a great idea in theory, but there's some major kinks that would need to be addressed. The first is we've mentioned it before with the idea of paying players. Um, Title IX is all about quality, and that's federal law. And so any institution, public or private, is going to be, uh, you know, have to follow this procedure. And so if you're paying one sport, it's difficult to not pay the others. And that then leads to this other question, which is um, the HBCUs are sometimes in really tight financial situations right now. It wasn't that long ago that Grambling uh, had a shortage of, uh, of money in their athletic department. And there were some horror stories about like their gym, their weight room falling apart for the football team. So those two issues right there, where is the influx of capital coming for this plan if they escape pod out from the NCAA. The second prong of my answer, though, is I do think that Jamal Hill is onto something. And Matt, whether your idea of paying works or does it, you're also onto something because the fact of the matter is, and I don't think we really like to say this as being three college football fans and three white people, but our respective institutions make a ton of money off of unpaid labor of their athletes, most of them black. And yes, Iowa had their first black player in the 1920s uh, or the 1900s, excuse me. So yeah, they have a little bit more of a legacy, but when you look at the SEC, it's a little stickier because they didn't desegregate until the 1970s when they stopped winning national titles in the 60s. And recent events, for instance, some Ole Miss students shooting up the Emmett Till sign kind of indicate to me that there are certain fans in the South who still don't really appreciate the African-American athletes as human beings. And they're there for the entertainment and for generating money for the school. And when you have questions and concerns of an unpaid labor source in our country's history, that's a rabbit hole you don't want to necessarily jump down on a college football podcast. No, definitely no. not. But I do, I would like to propose the idea, I guess more of an abstract concept, uh, talking about an HBCU football league the plausibility my my thought is if you could work it out which who knows we have to sort of push that aside we have to take this leap of faith if you could sort of get around the NCAA so they would form their own league and say our football team doesn't participate in the NCAA because they are we are allowing all of the people who are part of this football league and attend these universities to make money just off of their likenesses and now how you, obviously the devil's in the details of how you phrase that, but let's just say they could, they could form their own league. Do you think that there would be an attraction of uh, not just fans, but recruits to go to schools like Howard and Tuskegee um, 
and Florida A&M and North Carolina A&T to uh, play in this football league and, you know, get a, um, you know, an, an education that uh, if you look at the statistics leads to a more sustained middle-class lifestyle, I guess. Absolutely. Making a black professional middle-class. And this is obviously like yeah. a very, very risky territory for us to talk about yeah. as guys whose skin yeah. could be graded as see-through. <laughs> um, Matt, it's a big yes, because before the SEC desegregated, most of the HBCUs are in the South. Yeah. And those colleges were kicking butt in the 60s. They produced tons and tons of NFL draft picks. They were routinely winning high-caliber games and high-caliber recruits and recruiting battles. It's when Andy Robinson built up Grambling. And even after desegregation, there were still some athletes who chose to go that route. Jerry Rice is a great example, played with the Delta Devils. Uh, Steve McNair, the late great Steve McNair, played at Alcorn State. So it's feasible if my two concerns about where the money comes from gets sorted out. And Coach, you are also an enthusiastic yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the simple fact of, you know, you pay these guys, um, they're going to come. And the NFL has shown that they don't care who you play for. If you're good, you're good. If you can play in the NFL, you can play in the NFL. Scouts make a ton of money to find you. So playing at a Howard or playing at a Grambling, playing at Southern University, Bethune, Cookman, whatever, they're going to find you no matter what. And so if you – and I think it would be the start of people jumping ship from the NCAA and if the NCAA, if the NCAA would, would wanted, wanted to uh, be competitive, they would have to probably change some things they do because all their member organizations would start jumping ship. And the next thing you know, you got – uh, people joining these HBCUs. And so I, I think it would start a domino effect. Uh, but then again, I think it would have a uh, influx of um, African-American athletes heading to these HBCUs. So, um, and it would be great for those colleges. I mean, those colleges probably, you know, don't get as many kids as they, as they should. And some of the programs are really bad because they don't have the funding. They don't have the, they don't have the, the, uh, I guess they don't have the, the resources and they don't have the interest. And I think if you had some of these major prospects heading to your, to your campus, you might get some more televised games. And so it's all kind of, it's all kind of a cycle. It's all kind of plays off each other. So, um, I mean, would it be a great thing? I, I don't know. I don't know what it would do to college football and if it would water down um, the other conferences and the other universities, but you know, Again, college is a choice, and if you're gonna, if if I'm gonna get paid, get an education, and get to play football, you'd be stupid not to go. Yeah, and then, I, but the problem is that a, a lot of times the facilities are just so far behind, and that that's one of the things that matters to recruits, for better or for worse. And yeah. one of the things that Josh mentioned was the feasibility of the infrastructure behind it and the lack of money for it on the front end. And in order to get a Fab Five like recruiting class to go to one of these schools, which mm-hmm. is that that is sort of how I, I do really believe that that is one of the parts of 
Hill's argument to put a bow on this that I think really makes the most sense. And that could kickstart something like that would be to see, you know, she starts the article talking about Kayvon Thibodeau, who was number one recruit in ESPN last year. He's a five-star kid all over the board. He chose Oregon, but he took an official to FAMU, the Florida A&M. And that was huge news in the recruiting world. And a, a kid like that taking an official to an HBCU and, you know, and basically afterwards saying, you know, he loved the experience. Um, but, you know, when you have the chance um, you know, uh, but what, what, you know, what he's saying, when you have the chance, uh, between McDonald's and filet mignon, you're going to take the filet mignon every time. Yeah, of course you uh, are. Of course you are. So, you know, it's, it's putting the money in on, on the front end to, to make it happen. I think it would be, I think it'd be, I think it'd be great. And I would love to see it. You know, we'd have one right here, coach TSU. And, you know, uh, yes, we if, would. if we, if we could have, you know, it, it might be fun to see TSU play Vanderbilt if something like that were to come to fruition. Or TSU play MTSU, which they already do Vanderbilt sometimes. To be enjoyable at home. Yeah, well, they have not been um, <laughs> uh, of late. Uh, Coach, we thought their defense could tackle. Maybe it's just that Rondell Moore is really good. Um, yeah, Purdue kind of woke up in that one, I will say. Uh, yeah, they did. Rondell Moore, 220 total yards. Um, let's hop then into our uh, the games. And so we should start uh, with Clemson, uh, who were taking on Texas A&M in Death Valley. Uh, the final score was 24 to 10, but that doesn't really demonstrate the overall dominance that the Tigers showed on uh, the uh, on the on during the game, Josh, uh, because that uh, that that 14 point. Uh, margin of victory was a total backdoor cover by <laughs> Texas A&M scoring a touchdown with six seconds left to cover the 17 points for heading it down to 14. There you go. That's all it takes. Um, no, it was amazing defensive performance by Clemson, especially just bottling up their running game. Uh, A&M was held to 53 rushing yards on 27 carries. Um, Clemson, it goes without saying, they are a phenomenal team. The, better you are the more you can still succeed when you play sloppy and they played a little sloppy they didn't rush the ball as well as we normally see they had a turnover uh they weren't great on third down but when you're as good as clemson are you could still win by two touchdowns on the other side of the field i thought kellen mond overall had a pretty good game for adam the problem is he didn't get much help and AM needed to play about a perfect game, about a flawless game, uh, and it didn't happen. They had nine penalties, two turnovers. I mentioned their rushing day was pretty bad. Um, I guess if you want to take anything from this game is, in theory, Clemson can't play that sloppy, but that really only applies to when they get to the playoff. Because I don't think there's anyone in the ACC that holds a candle to him. Yeah, Coach. Uh, speaking of uh, the ACC, um, uh, after we talk about this game, I really want to talk quickly about North Carolina off to a 2-0 start uh, with Sam Howell behind center, this time beating Miami at home. Uh, but, uh, Coach, Clemson's defense may not at least have the same sort of upper-tier talent on the front end, but their defense looks as strong as it did last year when it was completely overwhelming. Yeah, I think just overall they're extremely solid. Uh, 
you know, they had playmakers to make to make up for some of the defici- deficiencies they had beyond the defensive line. I don't think those are deficiencies anymore. Some of those guys have gotten really good, valuable experience, albeit not starting experience, but they do. One guy that really impresses me week in and week out is A.J. Terrell. Um, he's somebody that's just all over the place. Um, but they just – scheme-wise, I mean, you can't understate Brent Venables. You know, he, he is earning his $2.2 million, uh annual salary, and it just seems like year in and year out, it doesn't matter who they leave, the next guy up is always ready to play, and that just kind of speaks to not only what kind of standard Dabo's setting, but what kind of standard – Brent Venables is setting. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, they are the number one team and they look deservingly so like the number one team right now. The other really big game over the weekend was in Austin, Texas. LSU came in with uh, an offense that I have not recognized in the purple and gold before. they have discovered how to throw the forward pass finally. Uh, Joe Burrow can throw them, and he is doing very well. They had 300-yard receivers uh, for the first time in a very long time. Joe Burrow had 471 total uh, passing yards in this game. Coach, uh, those Bayou Bengals uh, were really able to just keep the ball moving. I thought that you know down in the fourth quarter, I was thinking about getting conservatives. I was getting mad that they kept throwing the ball, but it was working. Absolutely, it was. I mean, I've never seen LSU's offense light it up like that. I, you know, they've always been okay and or good enough in the passing game, but I don't think they've ever. I don't think they've been like that at least since Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham Jr. were, were on campus together. I mean, they've been. You know, that was about as prolific of a passing attack I've seen at that university in quite some time. Um, and then even. Jarvis and OBJ were a blip on the radar. So, um, good things going on for LSU. I mean, I, I was I was impressed overall, and, and it just seemed like every time Texas answered the bell, every time Texas felt like they had control of the game, Joe Burrow would hit a big play, and LSU would get back control of the game. And so, I, I felt like up until the very end, nobody really had control of it. You know, kept going back and forth, and this was one of the more entertaining games um entertaining games to watch period and and what i really what really stood out about joe burrow to to circle back to your question or to to the idea that you posed is that he was showed tremendous poise in the pocket uh he made several throws under duress or staring down the barrel of a rush and and he just he was able to hit guys in stride he had good timing the ball came off his hand really well. I mean, that guy can spin it, man. It's It was impressive. Joe Burrow showed me that he can be an elite quarterback in this league and not just a um, slightly above average game manager. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, Josh, you know, you are our Texas skeptic every single year, and this is just more fuel to the Tom Herman fire. Give yes. me fuel, give me fire, give me something I desire. No, no doubt, frauds are gonna fraud. Look, the, the, is that like Browns are gonna brown? Yeah, it is. Look, the their past defense are shredded. They got to play Oklahoma this year. That doesn't really bode well. Their rushing game pretty uninspired. They ran for 121 yards. 
on 37 carries. Okay, kind of sounds all right, but wasn't Ellinger their leading rusher with 60 yards? Mm-hmm. That's he had half of the yards as it, yeah. uh, that the team did. Yeah, he also had a, twice as many carries as anyone else. Yeah, is that a is that a recipe for sustained success? I mean, Ellinger played his mind out. He yeah, he was phenomenal. He was phenomenal. You could ball. not ask for more yeah. from him. Yeah, he passed the ball amazingly well. LSU, I mean, they got to figure some things out before Tua. But, like, I, I said it during the preview go- show. It's a fun matchup because they're top 10. LSU's not beating Alabama. Texas isn't beating Oklahoma twice. So these are two teams that at the end of the day, they're not going to be in the playoffs. So it was fun shootout, but at, by the end of the year, eh, it won't matter. You don't see a scenario in which LSU loses close against Alabama. You know, you know a, a three-point game in Tuscaloosa, let's say, in early November. Otherwise, that runs the table getting into the playoff. No, because the last time they did that was in the BCS era, and in the second time around, oh, LSU, it was one of the worst games in history. Yeah, it was one so, of the worst games in history. So no, the track record is against LSU in that scenario. The track record for Georgia is theoretically better in that double SEC scenario. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Georgia's Georgia's played Ellis or uh, Bama tighter in bigger stages, like in the title game and stuff. Well, speaking of SEC uh, title game, speaking of the playoffs, well, national title game, playoffs. Of the, yeah. playoffs. Josh, uh, I don't think I don't think the Pac-12 is getting anyone in the playoff this year. Sorry, they better hope they better hope Utah runs the table, or that or that Keaton Slovis is the second coming uh. of, of 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 someone who's not JT Daniels. Don't count out the Cougs. I don't know. I mean, Colorado, we'll get to here in a minute. But Washington, who uh, seemed poised, um, if not Oregon, to be the top team in the conference, well, now both of those have lost within the first two weeks. Uh, Washington loses at 1.30 local time, or 1.22 local time, I should say. Uh, the game finally finished up. So 4.22, for those of you watching on the East Coast, with Cal... Uh, pulling out the victory with that Justin Wilcox defense, twenty to nineteen. Josh, uh, Jacob Eason, his first week against uh, Eastern Washington looked like uh, looked phenomenal. This week, not so much. Eighteen of thirty, uh, no touchdowns and a pick. It was uh, another and just a fumble fi- and a fumble and just not a good uh, week uh, overall for the Huskies. Uh, Man, did he did he look uncomfortable? Yeah. Yeah, uh, and a lot of it was honestly. I'll give Wilcox's defense a lot of credit for making that happen. Well, I I want to give special credit before we get there to Evan Weaver, uh, gentlemen. Evan Weaver credited for eighteen tackles, uh, fourteen of them solo, uh, including two tackles for a loss in the game. That's pretty good. Hmm. Yeah, not bad. So it's a solid. Yeah, performance. well, uh, you know, coach coach jumped in and interjected. Yeah, Eastad had a bad game and. He, I've said it before that when there's a kid that can't hang on to his job or maybe he never wins the job and transfers, that's kind of a, mm, 
what, what's going on? Like, is this someone who will put together a great career elsewhere? Because, um, you know, sometimes with running backs, it's a late bloomer. Sometimes with a wide receiver, maybe it's just a bad uh, style of play. Like you, you went to a school that coach changed to an option attack and then you transfer. Like, that's fine. With college quarterbacks, not winning the starting job, that is a little bit of, hmm. What about okay. Joe Burrow? We just talked about Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow just lit up Texas. Yeah. He's a transfer? Yes. I'm not saying it's the only flag that can happen. But it is a little bit of a cause for concern. And, we had that same concern yeah. with Joe Burrow, but he's and, proved us wrong. Well, yeah, he did prove us wrong. And maybe Jacob Eason will too. But it's just a pretty poor first impression against your Pac-12 debut. That's all uh, I'm it was, saying. It, it, was not, yeah. it was not impressive that's, in that's the That's all I'm saying. Uh, a different cause for concern, though, if you are Washington, and thankfully they might not have to play another team this physical until Stanford, but Cal ran the ball down their throats. Which and is- – which is funny yeah. because Washington ran 20 more plays than Cal did. Yeah. I mean, Washington ran 76 plays. Cal ran 56 yeah. plays. Um, you know. But, again, Washington turned the ball over twice. Cal did not turn the ball over at all. Um, their special teams were solid. Um, again, we talked about, um, you know, we special talked about teams. The, the special teams and the importance of a punter, even for Rutgers, should have been 60 to nothing instead of 30 to nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yet their they're six punts, I mean, they kept them out of, you know, good starting territory. So even though they were running all these plays, they were getting sawed out on third downs, uh, you know, more often. Yeah. And I mean, just to kind of wrap up the Joe Burrow, Jerry Cabisa uh, comparison, um, at no point was I saying this defines Eason's season or his career. I, I'm just saying when someone comes in really, really highly praised like Eason was to Georgia and they can't necessarily, uh, you know, get a second crack at the job, that's a little bit of a red flag. And for Joe Burrow, you know, he redshirted his first year. He wasn't quite as um, maybe like a can't-miss type kid. At least, you know, I don't pay as much attention to the recruiting. But, uh, you know, he was like a four-star kid. I don't think he was necessarily like – wasn't Eason like a can't-miss five-star Yeah, he kid? was the number one quarterback in the yeah. country in high school. So, you know, Burrow, Burrow was always going to be a little bit of a development. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure it's a great comparison. But, yeah, I, I think Eason has plenty of time to get things going. It's just – I kind of have this checklist of stuff and you know uh, if you are a transfer who can't ever get the starting job and then at like your second, third, or even some of these kids are at like their fourth school and they come out and they're making like high school type plays. It's like, Oh, well they didn't get the starting job because they haven't shown any development. Well, Josh, I think you should tell that to Charlie strong because Blake Barnett is still playing quarterback there and it is not pretty. Blake Barnett is married with kids. I, it's it's absurd. I mean, and he's not even Mormon. 
like this is absurd coach what kind of pressure is Jacob Eason under going back home I mean of all the places to transfer going back to Washington to Seattle where he's from I mean that that is just putting so much pressure on yourself I, I do not know if that would have been if I don't know if I would have necessarily done that but again it's his choice yeah it is his choice and, and I think he understands because I, that pressure was there to go to UW out of high school so um he had to have known what he was getting into and you know maybe he cracked under pressure maybe cal had a great defensive game plan and just was in his face all night long and had him under duress all night long maybe it was a combination of both i mean there's a lot of factors that go into it um but one of the knocks on eason was his erratic performances at Georgia um, his freshman year. That was one of the things that probably ultimately led to uh, the door never really reopening for him um, after he came back healthy from injury because Fromm proved that he could be something Eason wasn't, a solid rock at that position. And Eason wasn't that. Fromm was that. Therefore, Eason transfers to Washington. So, um, you know, because it, it, arm talent's there. He, he's got a rocket for an arm. He's tall. You know, he, he looks the part. You know, he can, he can move. He's not, he's not a runner, but he can move uh, well enough to avoid pressure. But I think sometimes his decision-making can, can, can improve because uh, I think he tries to force balls into windows that he shouldn't. I think his accuracy sometimes can be an issue, especially with overthrows. And, uh, and you know, he's got to take care of the ball better. So um, a lot of things that it's hard to improve on in a redshirt year when you're playing scout team. So, you know, maybe this is just a little bit of rust. Maybe he is who he is. Uh, whatever the case may be, he's got to do better if he wants to prove that this was just an aberration and not the norm. Yeah, it was overall not the greatest of weekends in the Pac-12. Well, they had one last, key... last but not least. Sorry, okay. Matt, but it's okay. I mean, let's let's acknowledge something. Uh, I know Cal had to go through the safe conditions, but uh, that was a insanely long delay. What did they play? Six minutes of game time, and then it was a two and a half hour delay. Yeah, yeah. And there was a the stadium was rapidly... empty. The stadium was completely empty. I know it looked like the Rose Bowl. <laughs> mm. Perfect segue because guess what? The Bruins are terrible. They are hot garbage. Just just forget about it. Like Thompson Robinson seemed like a nice kid, but I just I, I I don't know. I don't know. You you don't know how to keep the ball in your hands. You only only turn the ball over once. Um, but it was just it was not pretty. And I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's a play calling. I think it might be the offensive line. I think this offensive line is porous AF and it's not getting uh, the blocking schemes down correctly or something because the San Diego State team is not exactly great. They beat Weber State by a score of six to nothing. So, Weaver. yeah, well. Well, look, I, the, I mean. The, these Bruins is in, in, in this weekend – on top of that, though, that, that's the thing. Like, they got Joshua Kelly back. They got their best player back this weekend. And he, I mean, he touched the ball 15 times, which isn't bad. But he's the best player you're playing against an inferior, talented opponent, theoretically. 
give him the ball more than 15 give him the ball 25 times just win the damn game you you're trying to get too cute i'm getting i'm getting sick of this for chip i'm sorry i i am i didn't think i was going to turn chip this quickly but i've turned on chip well here's the problem they didn't run the ball well against san diego state or cincy one of the things that people overlook with his system at oregon when it was really clicking was great running backs they had less than two yards of carry and yeah between the line you know kelly being back but maybe not 100 percent type situation a little bit of rust there who knows um they didn't run the ball particularly well so that hurts and the other thing is it was all about speed 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 well yeah when you're the only team in the conference doing that great that's really unique um you want to talk about speed 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 hey chip have you seen oklahoma play you see ohio state play oregon still tries to do that arizona does it like i could go on and on and on and on outside of wisconsin and iowa (laughs) Uh, people are incorporating speed what he does is no longer unique and he was out of the college ranks for for a minute a little bit yeah he's out for five years and the game changed and the game changed um i mean another ranked team fell in the pac-12 stanford they were ranked uh 23rd coming into the week and they got slaughtered by heat on slovis 45 to 20 at the la coliseum uh ranked team losing by 25 points always a good look for your conference there uh but Keaton slovis a true freshman who was not you know your, your prototypical usc quarterback recruit coach i mean i feel like we've been talking about recruits this entire podcast but i mean here's a true freshman who was i would say what like a middle four-star recruit last year um coming out of scottsdale you know Warner, doesn't ha- baby and uh, his high school coach was Kurt Warner. That is correct. Uh, Keaton Slovis. Interestingly, the Penn State running back, not the Northern Iowa great <laughs> quarterback. Very odd. C, not a K. <laughs> no, it was. I know. It was, I know, of course, the great Panther for anyone listening who's absolutely apoplectic. Um, no. Uh, uh, yes, Kurt Warner was his high school quarterback, uh, his high school coach, I should say. And Slovis, all he did was tear up Stanford, which usually has one of the best defenses in the Pac-12. 377 yards, three scores. More importantly, no picks, no fumbles. Uh, just absolutely lit up that defense. And he was absolutely fantastic. And filling in for JT Daniels. And they just went going awake. Coach, uh, if you told me before the weekend started that USC beat Stanford, I'd be like, yeah, okay, that's plausible. Maybe like you know, 21-20, 24-21, something like that. Not 45-20 to 20, uh, in the way they did. Slovis, not exactly the top-rated high school quarterback recruit this season. So a guy that I was quite surprised to see just absolutely shred this defense. Yeah, I was too. Um, I was surprised at how poorly Stanford played and how poorly prepared they were, really. I mean, you know, you get a backup quarterback and a team the caliber of Stanford should be looking their chops, but – you know, they just – they played with no energy. They were making uncharacteristic mistakes, jumping off sides, you know, dumb pass interference penalties that, that you would see a team like Arizona commit. Um, you know, just things like that. I mean, they just – Stanford did not play Stanford football, and they were just 
from the start, they were just discombobulated and it, it was strange to see really. But uh, on a side note, I am, I, I was very much impressed with Slovis. I thought he did a tremendous job. Not a lot of hype around him. Uh, did not matter. Played extremely well um, in, uh, in light of the situation. He's really kind of come on strong uh, for the Trojans and he's going to, he, I, I think he's going to give them a chance. I don't know if they're I don't know if they're a team that's ready to beat Utah, um, but I think he gives them a chance. Well, uh, one other uh, note in this game that was St- that Stanford was breaking a new quarterback as well, um, and it was Davis Mills who was one of the top recruits in the country just uh, a couple years back. Um, the only I good remember res- this kid. Yeah, well, the only good result for the Pac-12, or really good result, I should say, for the Pac-12 this weekend, was Colorado uh, beating Nebraska in overtime at home. Uh, Josh, that was oddly gratifying. Especially for me, since I picked it and and called it to happen. There we go. Um, Nebraska's just not a complete team. They have some really nice pieces, and they have some upside, but... They're not there yet. And we saw their defense have a major collapse in the fourth quarter, give up 24 points. Uh, We saw they have some special teams issues. They missed the field goal in overtime. Uh, There's kind of something weird with Isaac Armstrong. He's uh, their punter um, and kind of out of an emergency situation. He has to do the kicking duty. So it's uh, not fair. Is this a theme like, yeah, punters <laughs> taking over. I guess tonight. so. Uh, so <laughs> not necessarily fair to throw him under the bus because he's played out of position. So, um, you know, he was the best suited to take over the kicking duties, but he's not a kicker and it showed in overtime. So that's kind of an issue for this team. Um, Adrian Martinez so far has had some great flashes, but he still is making some poor decisions, including an interception. So Nebraska is a team that doesn't get as much hype as Notre Dame every year or USC every year, but a lot of people see the end on the side of the helmet and buy stock that Nebraska really can't back up. And the people that were picking them to win the division, I don't know how much they actually follow Big Ten football because... Matt, you and I follow it pretty closely. Mm-hmm. We were both like, "Yeah, maybe they make a bowl." Um, I like. I I, I yeah. thought I thought eight and four was about the 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 absolute match of this team. Yeah, I don't I don't know that anybody realized how big of a rebuild Scott Frost uh, jumped into. I mean, you can kind of see his coaching talent kind of taking over because that's one of the things you start to see is before that before light bulb comes on. It usually flickers, right? Follow my analogy. It usually flickers a little bit. So you see those great moments. The the you know, Adrian Martinez throwing, you know, throwing dimes. All right. But then you have defensive collapse in the second half. You have the kicker going down and you just have terrible luck missing the extra, missing that field goal in, in overtime. You get a ninety six yard flea flicker dropped on you from Colorado. <laughs> Um, the Mel Tucker special, um, but then but, turn uh, around and have and have Washington uh, take it seventy five yards to the house. Yeah, I mean, then, then you have those it's moments. Crazy, you know. It, it's 
it just shows it just shows that they're they're a team that's still in a complete culture, you know, complete culture change. Um, it's an overhaul, really. It's a culture overhaul, um, and they're they're just rebuilding the roster. They have no depth, um, which it's you know, it's fair. I mean that, that that's just what it is. And Scott Frost knew that when he took the job, and he knew that he was going to have a uphill climb ahead of him. Uh, Mike Riley just and just Mike Riley does what Mike Riley does. He treated like <laughs> Oregon State, and uh, you know just did not recruit well, um, did not build the program well, and left a mess, left a bare cupboard for Scott Frost. And he also left a bare uh, cupboard for um, our our old pal Josh uh, from Wisconsin, Coach Anderson. Uh, and then he promptly took that bear covered and just completely ripped it out of the wall and left it in tatters when he went to Utah State. <laughs> he took a sledgehammer to the bear cupboard. Exactly. Um, <laughs> he completely and utterly destroyed it. Oregon State lost at Hawaii. You know who I would love Hawaii's to see? But it's it's Hawaii. Like, they're, they're, they're cute yeah, and they're yeah, fun, but, but you know it's who, Hawaii. You know who I'd love to see hire Mike Riley? Ohio um, State. Well, yeah, of course. I want, I want the self-imposed death penalty. I want Tennessee to hire him because they're Tennessee. That's that's pretty much who they're going to hire at this mm. point. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, Tennessee lost. In case you uh, in case you missed it, that was fun. Zero and two Vol fans are just the most pleasant people to be around that you could possibly imagine. Um, Their veterans are killing them, guys. Their veterans are just absolutely killing them. It's 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 bad. Um, they need to just go ahead and play some freshmen and just take what they take what they can get. Honestly, the best part of my wife's weekend was the fact that the Vols lost again. She said she turned on the TV when I was uh, I, I think I was doing the most manly thing I can think of, which is go to Home Depot to buy a hedge trimmer uh, to see that the Vols uh, were losing to BYU. Mm. So. Anyhow, um, last thing I want to get, the last game I want to get to is the uh, the drubbing of Syracuse. Josh, um, the uh, the Big Ten Maryland East just scored again. <laughs> the big the Big Ten East. Uh, is there a chance that Maryland's better than Penn State? There's certainly a chance. Uh, offensively, Maryland is. Firing all, all cylinders. If we and put if we put Maryland's offense with Michigan State's defense, you could create like a hybrid team that might rival Ohio State. Yeah, you might. Uh, thing with Maryland, like yeah, they beat Howard, and it was like awesome. You beat Howard, seventy nine points is pretty impressive. That's kind of a like ooh, what's what's going on with the Terps situation? That doesn't necessarily prove anything. And then you do it twice, and now you've really piqued my curiosity. Uh, they hit the road to Temple, and I think this is a good uh, situation to see what Maryland is like in terms of are they there coaching-wise. We know that their offense is going to be good, and yeah, they hired someone who won two games at New Mexico State, but and we we poo pooed that hiring a lot. I mean, yeah. much in the same way that we poo pooed Herm Edwards the year yeah. prior, and we were we were proven wrong. They but, play to win the game, <laughs> but at least 
we thought that he could do some good things on offense. Michael Oxley was with Alabama, learned quite a few things about offense. But I think this upcoming stretch will show has he improved as a head coach. They have their first road trip. It's at Temple. It's an 11 o'clock game. That stadium will be empty. Can they get up for it? Then they have their bye week. Are they looking forward to having their first break of the season? Or are they doing the, holy crap, we've got a game against Temple, a bye week to get ready for a home date against Penn State, an actual rivalry game. And when you start looking ahead, when you um, kind of have those lapses, like that'll show where the Terps are. How do you handle this success? How do you handle two weeks now of people going, they have the best offense of the Big Ten? That's where you prove it. Because what's happened to Maryland in the past, and I know um, it's not a great example because of all the turmoil they had last year, but their offense did start really, really hot a season ago, and then they had an early conference game at Iowa. And myself and a lot of Iowa fans were going, mm, their offense looks pretty good. This this could be a tough game. And by the end of the first quarter, we're going, oh, yeah, they're not big enough. They're not physical enough to handle us. And we shut them out. So we've seen this a little bit before, and Syracuse just might be a total hot mess this year. Maybe they're not living up to preseason expectations. But, yeah, Maryland, first time is intriguing. Second time, you've really piqued my curiosity. If they do the same thing to Temple, color me impressed, and I will totally reevaluate where I think this Maryland football team can end up. Coach. But they can still still do that and completely get manhandled by a deeper, more physical Penn State team. They could, but I, you know? I, I wasn't 100% sure Maryland could make a bowl game. If they beat Temple to start 3-0, and they have Rutgers. There's a win. They have Purdue on the road, maybe. That'll be an interesting game. They have Indiana at home. That's an interesting game. They have Nebraska at home. That's an interesting game. And they have the greatest conundrum in the league right now, Michigan at home. So I think if they start 3-0, and it'll have a different feeling than last year when they beat Texas in kind of a, a, a goofy game where it was like, haha, Texas is being Texas. And we didn't necessarily trust Maryland as much. I think people are starting to trust Maryland a little bit more this year. It has a different feel at least co- co- in the Big Ten. Yeah, Coach, for me, it's all about the Maryland running game. I mean, they average basically eight yards a carry this game. 354 yards on the ground to go along with the – 296 in the air but the fact that they're just so efficient when they put it on the ground so they ran it 45 times for eight yards a clip i mean that is extraordinarily impressive efficiency on the ground those are the kind of numbers that you want to see in yards per attempt when you're throwing the ball eight yards you know yeah, you, eight, eight you yards can't, per attempt. you can't take you can't take that away that's that's for sure i mean they've had an impressive start i'll give them that and they've exceeded our expectations. They've they've certainly exceeded mine. The, the other thing, though, is that I feel like they no haven't question. gotten – the problem is they haven't gotten punched in the mouth yet. No. And I think we'll and, see when Penn State rolls into town because Penn State's going to punch them in the mouth. Yeah, so we'll see they what they do. They will. Um, one of the things I think gets hidden in, in the box score for this game, because you look at it up and you say, okay, you know, Syracuse, like, you know, Tom DeVito statistically had himself a pretty, you know, a, a pretty decent game. 
Um, but, you know, and, and they turned the ball over twice, but that was only one more than Maryland. But they also were over three and fourth down conversions. And that's a case that, it's, especially as momentum is concerned, that's like adding, you know, three more turnovers right there. Uh, and, and so that just, you know, that can really be a, a killer, especially if you're going for, you know, right at, you know, somewhere near midfield, Maryland grabs the ball, two rushes later, they're in the red zone, and then it just feels inevitable. Yeah. Not for nothing, Temple did beat Maryland a year ago. So we yeah. they might get a wake-up call. We'll see. They might. Um, well, uh, speaking of wake-up calls, I'm going to need one in the morning. It's getting late, gentlemen. We need to wrap it up. Uh, is there anything we forgot here? Yeah, we had a big time burying the lead situation. What happened? God almighty. Josh, you got to keep us on track, man. But we had a double burying the lead because we have two great stories coming out of Fayetteville. Well, one's a great story. Uh, the other is a big hit to the title hopes. Uh, after really turning things around against Portland State, Arkansas had some flashes of a team that could compete with with Alabama, compete with LSU. and uh, they went to Ole Miss and just they lost in a heartbreaker. It was it was a tough one to stomach. You know those two touchdown heartbreakers that you have. You know those games where you play two quarterbacks and neither of them are any good. You know those games where you give up 237 rushing yards. Just it, it eats at your soul. And I feel like Arkansas if they could have gotten about 15 different bounces. They might have won the game, but I know. But uh, it's just like that one bounce. It's you know, yeah, yeah. You know, bounce. I, I know. I get they'll, it. They'll bounce back. And the reason they're b- going to bounce back is they just got a boost of confidence from a former head coach. And this is one of those heartwarming stories that you love to see. Uh, Bobby Petrino apologized Monday to fans in Arkansas after he was fired for misleading officials. And uh, I know we like to talk about it because it's hilarious. And so some people might think it happened just a year or two ago. Um, but in the timeliest of timely apologies, um, that whole news story broke in 2012. So this has been a nice seven-year apology waiting to happen. I know the good folks of Fayetteville are going to be fired up. Uh, I think they should make Bobby Petrino an honorary captain for their next game. Way to go. Bold strategy, Cotton. Bold strategy. <laughs> Way to go, Petrino. <laughs> All right, gents. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we will be back for you later this week to preview week three in college football. But for now, we are going to say so long and see you next time on behalf of our own offensive coordinator, the coach here in Nashville, Corey Burton, and our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and Counting, Josh Cook, up there in the Windy City. This is the professor in the Music City saying so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. I just go to I know the middle of the whole Texas. I don't know. Yeah, you know what I'm Thanks for listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. To get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion and check out our Facebook page. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.